This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. The status of Russia as a world power has been fiercely debated since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Although often ignored, Russia came back into the international limelight in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and more recently in 2022 with the war in Ukraine. However, what are the underlying precepts behind Russian behavior on the international stage and how does Russia's leaders perceive their country's place in it? To answer these questions, is the topic of this episode, and we will be discussing the book Russian Grand Strategy in the Era of Global Power Competition, published by Manchester University Press and edited by Andrew Monaghan. Dr. Andrew Monaghan is a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Service Institute in London. This past spring, he was a George F. Kennan Fellow at the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute that specializes in Russian research. He is also the author of a number of books on Russia, including Dealing with the Russians. Uh, Andrew uh, Monaghan, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to join you. Yeah, and a very interesting topic of uh, this book in light of uh, recent events as of uh, June 2022. Uh, but usually we like to begin by asking our guests to uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how did you get started on working on this book? Well, the the book has come from a relatively long set of or deep set of roots, I should say. I, I began all this on uh, studying Russian foreign policy in the early 2000s. And then I started to evolve more towards studying Russian domestic politics. And I started to, to find really this question of of power and, and strategy and how how Russia's role in international affairs also links quite closely with how things do and don't work in Russia. So I started to use the, the, the lens of, of strategy as a means of understanding power and, and, and how things work in Russia. And then this question began to fit into the, 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 the more political question, I suppose, or the more public policy question uh, that really came up in the in the, the early 2010s, whether is the Russian leadership strategically minded or just making it up as it goes along? Is it a is it an ad hoc leadership? Uh, so I, I thought I would try to offer a, a long running uh, a long running question, a long running answer to this long running question. And this is in many ways the second volume. So I had a first stab in mid 2010s, 2017, called Power in Modern Russia which looked at more of the internal dynamics of strategy power and strategy and power creation. And this is sort of an informal second volume where we try and shift that to more global horizon. Now, uh, could you probably quickly summarize for our listeners what what do you mean by grand uh, strategy? I know it's a complex topic, but can you kind of... Yes, uh, kind, of, could, kind of give us a working definition so we, we could we could probably spend most of the rest of the discussion on, uh, on, yeah, on various debates about this as a as a whole not only whether russia has one or not but, but yeah, what yeah, it actually yeah. means but, so yes it's it's much debated and we, we i sketch it out a bit in the introduction to the book um but what we're really talking about is that is the creation of power here the the traditional version of course traditional definition is the relation of of ways and means to achieve political ends 
But I, I try to break that down a little bit in, in, in this book, again, as that follow up to power in modern Russia. What we're looking at is, is three things. First is, is a leadership's assumptions about how the world is and how it will be. So it's a forward looking, uh, forward looking idea. Second, it's the basis. These assumptions provide the basis for policy planning. So the plans that, that the leadership then or the government then shapes. And then finally, and probably most importantly, in terms of real strategy, it's, is implementation. So the execution of this. So it's an executive process. Uh, let's just take this a little bit further. Two things to say is that it's a persistent effort to implement an agenda. So it's not a question of either you have it or you don't. It's, it's in many ways, we are witnessing the, the rebirth of Russian grand strategy under Putin. It's a long and protracted process. It's also a difficult process. And, and nobody who's ever tried to do strategy anywhere throughout history has ever found it easy. It's always been difficult because it's a dynamic and competitive and interactive process uh, that involves dealing with the fog of having to peer into the future on the one hand, but then also the friction, as Clausewitz would say, of, of trying to implement your plans against a constantly shifting world. And what you're trying to do, therefore, is you're trying to conduct your own internal orchestra, um, the, the people, the ministries, the organization, the bureaucracy and so on. But you're also conducting it in in dynamic interaction with uh, external parties, adversaries, allies, neutral states, as well as as well as the opposition of events. So so it's a very dynamic and difficult um, process. That's 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 what we try and use to see what's happening here. I, I take it a little bit further just by emphasizing this point about policy planning in the book on the one hand and implementation on the other, that tension between the two of theory and practice. Now, what are some common mistakes that Westerners make when analyzing Russia? And I can think of two major examples, and you even address this in the book, the introduction. You know, one is that Russia is a power in decline because it's no longer the Soviet Union. And as a result, you know, Russia is just really irrelevant, especially compared to other powers like China or even India or the European Union. Yeah, um, common mistakes. Well, look, <laughs> the first thing we have to say is anytime you try to understand uh, another state or an international organization, you know, this is this is difficult mental gymnastics. There's all sorts of different ways and methods we can use, whether it's political science or whether it's area studies or strategy. It's always difficult. So, so there are lots of mistakes. But I think we do make we do make three sets of, of common mistakes. The first is to turn Russia into an abstract. So we have Putin's Russia. And, and this misses the whole dynamic of how, 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 how Russia does and doesn't work, how, how Russia is network politic, a network body politics, how it's teamwork in many ways, how there is a, a dysfunctional chain of command and so on and so forth. So it's, it's not this sort of abstract one-dimensional Putin's Russia. Another abstract is, for instance, the, the, the more or less ubiquitous after Crimea sense of Gerasimov doctrine this sort of sense of hybrid warfare. And again, you know, I would ask people, well, tell, tell me a bit about Gerasimov. And they didn't know who he was or what, but it had just, it had seeped through an interpretation of an interpretation of a translation of one of his articles. And, and this, this became a, a thing, despite the fact it had almost nothing to do with what he originally wrote or who he was or what he was saying. So this sense of Russia in the abstract is the first one. We talk about doctrines and, and, and we name them to people. The second is we turn to, turn to analogies. And it usually ends up being the first one to hand, whether it's relevant or not. And, and, and this tends to distort and simplify our, our view uh, of what's going on. I suppose one way of looking at this would be to say that, well, Russia's, the, the Russian leadership is, is like Brezhnev, Putin's like Brezhnev, or Putin's like Stalin. And there's, there are others which we can probably point to, but I won't. Um, this gives us the impression that the Russian leadership is looking back, not forward. I think this is a mistake, uh, because actually in many ways the Russian leadership has been for the last 20 years already looking forward to where we are now. One of the reasons why, why the Russia, is, Russia is able to, to, to do what it's doing is because of this long-term horizon of building to a future. And then third is the question of, as you were saying, of, of Russia in decline. Uh, these kinds of things where this is based on very, um, very specific views of of some 
quite out of date evidence in many ways. Russia in demographic decline, for instance. There's a whole debate about this, which we didn't go into in in this book. And but 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 the point is, Russia faces uh, socioeconomic um, bleak socioeconomic outlook. Uh, demography uh, is in decline, and and so on. This is definitely a view from the 1990s. It's a view that since then the Russian leadership has tried to engage with, and, and the demographic question is much, much more sophisticated or much more nuanced. So all of this sense of decline is, is really in the late 2030s or 2040s if it's a demographic question. So this sense of Russia in decline throws our foresight in our foresight and our thinking about Russia into confusion. Uh, because we talk about Russia as a challenge, and then we summon up these scenarios where Russia in decline just disappears from the international horizon. Or in some deus ex machina, Russia just seeks reconciliation. So these are three common mistakes I tend to tend to point out. There are more, but but, but this is why we often end up being surprised because we we treat Russia in, in abstract or in, in with out of date information. Now, one issue that always kind of comes up with Russia's place in the world is whether or not it's a European or an Asian power, or maybe somewhere a little bit of both. How does the Russian leadership kind of perceive Russia's place in the world in that question? Oh, yeah. good, good, good question, because this is, this is again, uh, one of those almost entangled cultural, civilizational, political, social questions, which is very um, difficult and long, long hammered out in a kitchen over, over, um, over tea and, and other things. So you'll, you'll probably be familiar with this discussion in the 1990s about whether Russia was a part of Europe or apart from Europe. And in many ways, I think the book tries to rephrase that, although in passive, in, in implicitly, to frame it as a Europe apart. And that's that's a question of, of, of values and, and putting it up in, in opposition to, to the European Union. Um, but definitely the Russian leadership sees itself as, as a part of European culture and civilization. Now, there are doubts and debates about that within Russia and, and outside, but it's certainly there. It's also true that it's an inescapable part of, of Asia. The lengthy coast on the Pacific and lengthy border with, with China, um, obviously deep relationship with Central Asia, and the Russian leadership talks of, of 21st century being a Pacific century and pivoting to the Pacific. So very strong focus there. And I think though it would be it would be too easy to talk about Russia as, as positioning itself as a bridge, as a Eurasian bridge. And one of the things that the book tries to do is reshape the language here a little bit to useful terms. So we're not just talking great power, which we can debate all the time, but actually offering not just an east-west, but also a north-south focus here. So that Russia we talk of as a, as a polar power, because it's busy establishing itself in the Arctic, but also driving an agenda in Antarctica. So the word I come up with, or the, the phrase I come up with in, in the conclusion to this, is that Russia is that Russia, the leadership is trying to position Russia as a ubiquitous power. Not a, not a fully present global power all the time, but a power that's able to deploy its capabilities across the world to be an indispensable part of, uh, of, of international affairs. Now, uh, one part of this uh, ubiquitous power was the importance of maritime uh, objectives shaping Russian grand strategy. And Russia is usually, although it has a navy, it's never usually seen it traditionally as a naval power, particularly like the United States or even Great Britain. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the one of the, the, the pleasures of working on this book um, as an editor is I, I was able to to work through and, and, and meet and work with um, a group of real subject matter specialists. And, and, and we'll come to this, I, I imagine, throughout our, um, our our discussion today. But we tend to think of, of Russia as a land power, as you say, if we're talking in geopolitical terms, which the Russian elite often does these days. We think of Russia as a continental power, and there's much to this. But but Moscow every year emphasizes that Russia is also one of the world's leading sea powers. I think this is a really interesting aspect that, that we try to come to terms with in the book as well. It gives it, I think, a, a fresh angle. Because Russia not only has a long history of maritime exploration, not, not, not very long ago, Putin was celebrating Russia's maritime discovery of, of, of Antarctica, for instance, um, but also the, the, the exercises in the high north at, at, in, in, in the Arctic, Umka exercises. Russia obviously has very long coastlines um, on the one hand and has to try to, to manage this, uh, partly in terms of security, for instance. But also uh, much of Russian export 
goes out by sea. So Russia, in many ways, is, is a maritime export economy, which we don't tend to think of in this sense. So I think the Russian leadership is is aware of, and we we talk about this in the UK. I know that this is discussed a lot in the US and and elsewhere. There is a maritime turn in international affairs, and I think that Russian leadership understands this as well, is trying to be part of this, and it's both an economic and a security question. If you, if as I say, the economics go out by sea, much of economic export goes by sea, but the wars that Russia has lost in the past have tended to be against maritime powers, Japan, uh, the UK, or Great Britain, or British Empire, as it was at the time. Um, and then, of course, in the Cold War as well, the, the, the threat from the US and the UK and NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So, so deliberately, we try and reshape this so that, that Russia is, is not just a continental power, but is much more ubiquitous, as I say. And within that, there's a maritime turn. Now, focusing more on the security and military aspects, uh, what have been like the major developments within the Russian Navy since the collapse of the Soviet Union that continue on to this day? Well, this is one of those those timely questions. I think that hopefully the, the book sets up because we're seeing it we're seeing it really right now in in uh, in the war in Ukraine. The overall debate since the since the early nineteen nineties was was has been shaped by shortage. So the Russian navy has been in decline more or less since it came into existence, if not before it came into existence. So the 1990s was chronic shortages of, of funding, of personnel, of training, of everything. Um, and this, this rendered it slightly lopsided in certain ways. Um, new vessels did arrive, but, but much, more, uh, much more obvious were the outgoing vessels um, in terms of the decommissioning. This has, has shaped a continuing debate over the nature of what, what kind of Navy Russia now needs, whether it's surface vessels, whether it's submarines, what they should emphasize, the role of that Navy, should it be ocean going, should it be large ships and, and aircraft carriers. So in fact, we've got four or five debates going on here. Um, in fact, I think the priorities will continue to lie in, in strategic deterrence and in submarines. And what we've tended to see though, is, is substantial investment through the 2010s, um, with efforts to deploy further afield across uh, across the world, I mean, we, we could talk about the the naval the flotilla and off the G20 off Australia in the G20 in 2014. We could talk about the, the Admiral Gorshkov circumnavigating the world, I think, in 2019, and so on. So we see a global approach here, which we'll come back to later, where the Russian leadership wants to deploy its its forces cap capably across the world, not just be there, but capably across the world. And then second, you have this sense of the Russian Navy fitting in as a war, as a war fighting entity. So there isn't, this is one of the differences we have with, 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 with Russia. There's no real such thing as a naval strategy in Russia. The naval component is always a part of the broader military effort. And you see that now with the Russian Navy um, bombarding and uh, bombarding and, and blockading Ukraine and, and dominating the Black Sea. Oh, well, incidentally, we should bear in mind, um, just to add to that, it's not just what's happening in, in, the, in the Black Sea. Um, of course, Caspian Sea Flotilla is also involved in, in, in bombarding Ukraine. So th this is part of that sense of a, of a global horizon and a linking of different regions, while we also still have the threat of, 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 of submarines and strategic capability. So the Navy plays quite a big role in this. And for me, one of the, well, uh, as I say, the pleasure of working with these, these colleagues was we could delve into these, these issues in more depth. But, but I think that the naval aspect is one that's really overlooked uh, in, in Russian strategic planning. And a lot of this is where Russia, with problems, is trying to assert itself as a maritime power in the 21st century. Yeah, and uh, another uh, capability that Russia has been developing that's mentioned in the book is its map-making capabilities and how that serves uh grand strategy purposes. Can you explain this in detail? Yeah, sure. This is, again, this is one of those parts where we're trying to separate. Look, there's a lot of things, I must say, we, we, don't, um, we don't cover in the book in terms of the usual things that we would look at. So, you know, we don't look at NATO-Russia relations. We don't look at Russo-US-Russia relations, the, the sort of standard fare. But I think, I think we are, we're trying to offer something slightly different here by building up a, a view of how the Russian leadership thinks it sees the world it's, and, and frames its, its, its view of the world. And we have one of the, I think one of the, the very happy contributions is by Alex Kent, one of the world's, one of the UK, certainly, and one of the world's 
um, leading leading geographers and, and cartographers is he's contributed this this uh, this chapter building through the Soviet capability first demonstrating how how that became the most comprehensible most comprehensive sorry global cartographic project of the 21st century and he shapes that to begin with and then he shows how the Russian leadership has has, has invested to try to take that forward. So he calls this chapter the revolution in, in Russian geospatial capabilities, which I think gives you already that, that sense of the importance in, in, in Russian uh, thinking. Two points. First, it's that, that aspect of Moscow's mental map, if you will, or, or mind view of the world. I mean, it's called mental map in some of, some of the academic literature, so maybe let's stay with that. This, again, is that emphasis that this is not a, a Euro-Atlantic question for Russia. This is a global horizon. So global global thinking uh, and global horizon is mapped out now by geospatial, geospatial capabilities, GLONASS and reconnaissance satellites and so on. Uh, but this global horizon is, is, shapes its planetary scope of thinking, but also military geography. And we're talking about information, real-time information in war, contribution to, to decision-making. So, so it, that, this chapter offers three things in many ways. It draws on that longer-term that longer term thinking through of, of how the, the first the Russians, then the Soviets, then, then the Russians again have this long tradition of, of mapping the world, of exploration and, uh, and, and being and trying to shape information about the world. Second, how the current Russian leadership links, links relations. And third, that geospatial capability for decision making. Now, you did mention the Grasimov uh, doctrine uh, earlier, and uh, this kind of ties in with uh, what the book calls uh, Russian conceptions of sixth generation warfare. Uh, can you explain uh, that concept uh, for our listeners? Yeah, sure. This is to me, this is one of the, those questions when you come back to that, that, that good question you asked earlier of, of what are the main mistakes that we've made? One, one, I mean, we're obviously, for for, for human reasons, appalled and, and shocked by by what's happening in in uh, in Ukraine at the moment. But I think I think part of that under is is also is also sort of a doctrinal surprise that we we'd rather written off what real war means in particularly in in Europe, and we we talked for the last nearly for nearly for a decade about how the Russian military prioritized non-military measures and even how the Russian military through this so-called non-existent, it must be said, Gerasimov doctrine, how the Russian military's main emphasis was now moving away from violence. I mean, not only is this ahistorical um, in terms of the Russians almost always relying on, on heavy firepower, but it's also not what the Russian leadership has been talking about for the last decade. In fact, in fact, a lot of what the Russian leadership has been talking about is indeed war as a transition to armed force, as something that's characterized by armed violence and by lots of firepower. So uh, the, the main concerns for the Russian military as they've been thinking through this are actually global focus and, and really the primary delivery of, of US, primarily the, the US delivery of power across the world. So, so perhaps the two main things that have been discussed implicitly and explicitly in, in the Russian debate have been Gulf War I and, and 21st century version of Blitzkrieg. Now, I think if we paid more attention to this, uh, this discussion, a very explicit and public discussion, we would be, we would have a slightly more, more realistic grasp of how the Russians uh, go to war. Let's Let's break this down a little bit. You ask about sixth generation warfare, because this is this is really Russian war thinking. And of course, this is how it would affect a question of 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 war with NATO, war with the US or, or, or the UK. This goes all the way back to the Falklands War in many ways, but but accelerates through Gulf War One and into the Iraq War in 2003. It comes from a debate about the, the future of war, changing character of war um, from a general, uh, the late General uh, Slipchenko. And he, he picks up effectively six generations at that time. This is through the 1990s. Six generations of war. The first is edged weapons. Second is gunpowder. Third is rifled weapons. Fourth is automatic weapons. Fifth is nuclear weapons. The, the, the sixth generation that he talks about is really long-range precision-guided weapons and non-contact warfare, where you're really targeting the leadership. Um, and, and the point was that he demonstrated how Effectively, this was information age warfare against industrial age warfare, as demonstrated first sort of in the Falklands War, and then particularly in, in 1991. So that's that, that point that, that 
that it becomes again we start to think about information as central to war and that information is not just information psychological but information technical and, and the, what the russians call information technical which is about precision precision guiding and capabilities so sixth generation warfare really talks about about information being being central to this and and striking uh, striking from a distance again what we're talking about is question of global horizon uh, extended theories of mil- uh, theaters of military activity and a, and a planetary form of warfare where in which range and speed are, are essential uh, there are blurred lines between strategic operational and tactical and blurred lines between the offensive and defensive. Again, it must be said that in, as so often with the Russians, theory is, off, is ahead of capability by, by many years. Um, to be fair to Slipchenko, he talks about seventh generation warfare, which is warfare on a global scale, again, of disrupting the planet's information domain and information assets. But this is likely only by 2050. So, I mean, the one thing I would add to this Sorry for the long answer, but I, I hope it's you know this this clarifies some of the, the no 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 you're doing fine. Russians think about war. Um, the one thing I would add to this is that that even if you fight a sixth generation warfare, parts of that war, or in, if you're ready for sixth generation warfare, parts of that war or a war that you fight can be characterized as an earlier generation, and we're we're sort of seeing that that blurring now in terms of of, of what's happening in Ukraine, which might well be in effect, also a, a fourth generation war. That's very fascinating. In fact, uh, your answer kind of reminded me about the uh, the revolution in military affairs debates of the 1990s yes. and how that was originated in the 1970s with the Soviet military thinkers about how yeah. technology and information was going to be changing the battlefields of the future. So in some ways, it was yeah. only in the 90s that we kind of caught up with that concept. So. Yeah. I mean that you know it's a slightly different question, but but that that takes us right back. You know we can all we can trace this right back even to the 1930s, 1920s, and uh, even even 1914. There's that there's that constantly evolving question, the changing character of war that the Russians and then the Soviets and then again the Russians study exactly as you say that 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 revolution in military affairs, uh, which is what what we call it over in, in, in here in the Euro Atlantic community, um, the. The Russians have keep keep trying to think about this, and really, Ogarkov in the seventies and early eighties was talking in many ways about the capabilities he wished he had, and we're now seeing Gerasimov and others try to create that. Yeah, and uh, I guess for clarification, with the Gerasimov doctrine or the speech from which that term's derived, he actually kind of said that Russia was the victim of supposed hybrid warfare from the West. That not that Russia needs to target the West with that. That's usually a common oh, yeah. mistake i see oh, yeah. when people analyze that oh yes no i mean i think that's right i mean what what i do think we need to to be clear about is is what he's really talking about is the what is the cutting edge of war now this is part of russian military science which you know we we, we haven't really dug into since the since the cold war days and part of the point of this chapter is to create that again that sense of continuity and evolution and, and planning and thinking about things which go into that persistent strategic approach but the when you see these articles that are, that are, that are put out to shape the debate, what you see is 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 how the Russians see the cutting edge of war, both in terms of it being a threat to them, but also what they need to be doing. And and this is what I think is quite interesting in, in terms of of how we go about understanding the Russians adopting lessons from elsewhere and trying to transplant it onto their own their own system, um, but also then shaping through their own military history experience, their own concepts. And this this question of military strategy is something I'm, I'm working on quite a lot at the moment. But the but it's something we've tended to overlook almost entirely over the last decade, which is which is one of the reasons why we've slightly, I think, misframed and misjudged what's what's been going on. Yeah, from my own experience, I've noticed this general issue just since the fall of the Soviet Union, where, again, as we discussed earlier, the whole notion of Russia being irrelevant. So we don't need to pay attention to them at all. But. They're actually uh, pretty forward thinking and uh, even in areas quite unrelated to the military. I mean, uh, I do research in big history and uh, the big history, uh, there's even a whole Russian school of big history with social evolution, which is pretty uh, revolutionary in the field. So it's just kind of pointing to this fact that, you know, Russia's not that irrelevant. Uh, moving on. Uh, Kind of continuing on with this, uh, how are how important are information warfare operations in 
Russian military uh, strategic thinking, uh, especially related to the sixth generation war or even the seventh generation that you mentioned earlier. Uh, information is is absolutely central to this, and um, again, we see it. In, I mean, we see it percolating through through the entire concept of how Russia thinks about war. And again, there, there is though that distinction that they make between information psychological, which we might think of as propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, and so on, but then information technical, which involves the more practical side, which is which is really real-time information to affect decision-making and in terms of reconnaissance, um, targeting, and, and, and then striking. So this, I think this, this underpins a lot of how, how Russia uh, approaches, approaches war. Uh, it's very similar. We could in, indeed understand this as network-centric warfare. The Russians themselves spend a lot of time talking about this. We've tended to focus on information psychological, uh, there are a few honourable exceptions, including our esteemed contributor to the book, uh, Charles, Charles Bartles, who, who have looked at Russian information, technical and, and so on. Um, but this, this point about information is, is essential, again, with those two brackets of, of, of psychology, because, because every effort is made, rightly or wrongly, successfully, unsuccessfully, every effort is made to undermine the adversary before they go to war. So information psychological is essential. And then once you start to move into... The deployment of, of military campaigns, then you have that question of the need for speed and dynamism, so real-time information. And that's a bit what comes back to Alex Kent's chapter about global mapping and geospatial capability and so on. So this is, I hope that a, that a sort of integral idea, integral idea is starting to take shape between how these chapters all link together um, about the creation and the organization of assumptions, but also of planning and then, and then the execution. Well, that's a real good strength of the book is how all these different elements are kind of tied in together. And uh, one chapter kind of discusses one area that's often uh, neglected in Russian analysis, and that is uh, Russia's strength as an economic power. And is Russia often underestimated in this uh, sphere? This is, again, I, I like I like these kinds of these kinds of questions, because one can then start to, to, to respond, start to blur the answer between uh, to something that's quite, I find personally quite interesting. But the answer is, is the Russian economic strength underestimated? Well, well, no, because, because there's no way we can really talk about Russian economics as, as dynamic or innovative or, or, um, or, or, or strong. At the same time, in many ways, yes, it is because it's, it's certainly not as not as not as easy as all that, and depends a little bit on how you how you measure it. And this isn't some sort of you know economist tweak to 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 shape something. This is purchasing power parity, which is widely used as as a, as a measure and a very good use of of of, of measuring economic actual economic strength rather than market exchange rates. And and this reminds us that a the Russian leadership has much more money to spend on its agenda than than we think otherwise. So defense spending, for instance, is much more substantive than, than, than it would be if we did it in market exchange rates. But it also reminds us that, that on purchasing power parity, Russia is, is currently, okay, we'll, we'll see what happens with the, the economics, the sanctions and so on, currently the sixth in the world and the second largest behind Germany and fluctuating alongside Germany and Europe for, for being the largest in Germany. So, so it, it, is, it is underestimated in some senses, because because we don't really see that 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 those those indicators when we when we hear it being compared to the economy of of, of, of Portugal or, or or Italy or some such, but in fact, really what we're looking at is a set of strategic bases that the Russian leadership has tried to shape, which is hydrocarbons, weapons, of course, uh, nuclear power plants, export, and and grain. So so the Russian economy has a number of strategic bases, even if it's not dynamic or innovative. And as as Richard Connolly, the, the the author of the chapter here, calls, I think he's called it an archipelago archipelago economy, um, areas of of some real substantive strength and and some areas of 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 um, weakness. Let's call it an important dynamic in this is that the Russian macroeconomic leadership has been actually rather good. You know, we can talk about the Russians failing in many ways. Um, to foresee economic economic declines, the Russian economy has been in recession in many ways and collapses in 1998 and 2008 and so on. And this is this is true, but this is it matched against a, a lesson learning macroeconomic uh, leadership that has tried to build funds and has successfully built funds for a rainy day. And and it's it's 
it's a big rainy day at the moment. You know, they, they built 620, 630 odd billion dollars of foreign exchange reserves before the war. Now that's, you know, Russia is, is, has very limited debt externally. Well, it does have some, but it's very limited. So, so it built this, this, um, this economy, Russian leadership built this economy that was designed to be defendable against economic statecraft. Yeah, in fact, I was just even recently reading about how the ruble is the strongest currency in the world against the dollar, uh, you know, as a result of the sanctions. And I was kind of thinking, that's Amazing. kind of interesting. Yeah, the fluctuations that we see, you know, and, and you know, with the sanctions, with the economic sort of the big, the big waves that you see going on economically, you know, the the Russian Russian income was more this April than it was last last April, significantly more as far you know. So it, it, we have to be quite careful when we talk about Russia's economic strength, because <laughs> there's there's a lot of weakness, and no, you know, no one could could uh, underestimate that 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 scale of weakness in many ways. But at the same time, there's there's a big area of of of, um, of capability and strength, and I think that part of the Russian leadership's intention was to be able to cope with, as we'll come on maybe to to talk about a bit later, cope with a decade of geoeconomic competition. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that phrase by uh, Michael Kaufman: "Russia is never as strong or as weak as it appears." You know, yeah. it's always it, it's kind of like that twist on the old saying about it being an enigma to us. Yeah. And uh, what role does armaments trade play in Russia's place in global security? Because, of course, we've been talking about the military. And, of course, that still remains one of the big strong areas of the Russian of the Russian economy. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think well, it's probably clear to, to, to many that, that Russia is is the second largest arms exporter behind behind the US internationally. Um, so it's a it's a very it's a very substantial uh, exporter, but I think one of the things I'd like to try and, and do is emphasize that, that arms is just one part of a broader set of exports. Now, um, what we talk about in the book is is, is a, a supplier of strategically important goods. So weapons is or arms is one of them, but we're also looking at hydrocarbons, nuclear power plants, and uh, and and grain. And so uh, you know, lot hydrocarbons. I think people are probably very familiar with Russia's position as a the major exporter of hydrocarbons. Uh, weapons, probably too. One of the big surprises over the last few years is Russia's emergence as a as as one of the leading grain exporters, if not at certain times the leading exporter of grain on the global yeah, market. Yeah, even in recent news, that's become right uh, up in the news today. Exactly, and people, this mm-hmm. is this is one of those things that that has happened over the last decade. And in some sense, it's a, it, it's a, it's the result of the first round of sanctions. You know, if we were to talk about exports and imports, in many ways, the first set of, of sanctions that were put on on Russia obliged Russia to oblige the leadership to impose uh, import substitution and to sustain the domestic agricultural business. And one one of the the longer term aspects of this is that Russia is then able to export grain. Imagine, uh, even before COVID, Russia and Russia was competing with France. In terms of exporting grain to North Africa, I mean, it's some some really interesting parts come out of this. So arms, absolutely, you're right. I, this is a this is an important aspect. I I think it's really interesting that this is one of five um, strategically important goods that the Russian leadership is deliberately and, and explicitly and has over the longer term planned sought to diversify and reach into the developing world as we as we might have called it during the cold war era um uh, but as we would look at it now as the indo-pacific um the, the middle east and north africa and sub-saharan africa now as we as we reshape our view of the world the russia the russian leadership looks at this in slightly different ways they still call it asia pacific but they emphasize the middle east and north africa um so building a relationship with turkey for instance Turkey imports all, Russia is a strategic supplier, i.e. more than 10% of all five of these strategically important goods. I think China currently has three, but it's about to go to five. India too, growing. You look at Iran, you look at Bangladesh, for instance, other states in in that era that that show the importance of diversification and influence being shown uh, across the world, that that global horizon. That that for me is what's particularly interesting. And, And you could also talk about Russian grain to the Gulf um so so this economic picture for me is is one of surprising strength let's call it that acknowledged weakness but some surprising strength and again that's that that question of 
planning that has evolved over um, over uh, actually nearly 20 years of deliberate efforts to diversify its markets, deliberate efforts to reach into growing markets and, and not rely on, on saturated markets, and a deliberate effort to establish intra, um, political influence. In many ways, I think this is this is about driving a, what the Russian leadership has called a post-West world, um, driving what the Russian leadership sees as a structural shift in international affairs, and is returning to that, that point about mental maps and how the horizon is seen as global, regional connectivity, so the Atlantic connected with the Pacific, the high north connected with the Indian Ocean. For me, this is one of the most interesting aspects of, of Russian strategy. We're talking about geoeconomics rather than geopolitics. Yeah, and that kind of made me think of the contrast with the Soviet Union is that there isn't as much uh, ideological constraints on Russia, on Russian efforts around the world, whereas they don't have to support, you know, oh, we can only support fellow communists, but it's almost like, well, anyone who's on our side, we can uh, support. Yeah, uh, I mean, when you when you start to see the maps, you know, there, as you as you'll have seen, and, and as, as readers of the, the, the book will find there are a number of, we've tried to illuminate some of this, not just text, but with maps and graphs and so on in the in, in the book, you start to see how the world is shaded differently. And that, that point of a post-West world, and you know, it, it really talks to the idea of Russian foresight and, and to, out to 2020 and 2030, which is that shifting structure in international affairs, the, the rise of the East, the emergence of a Pacific century, um, you know, the, the impact, oddly enough, of things like climate change. Yeah. Now, how does Russia kind of balance itself between uh, non-Western markets, which you delved into uh, just a moment ago, and also Western markets? And of course, I know uh, recent events have kind of shifted uh, the dynamic a bit, but uh, if you can uh, illuminate on yeah. that issue. Sure. I mean, we have, I think in many ways, the, uh, the current situation is, is, is a continuation of what we were talking about in the book. Um, in two two particular chapters, both economics and energy, is 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 a demonstration of these long running themes that the Russian leadership have been trying to trying to play into. Now, as you as you probably know, and your listeners maybe know that the the actual U.S. U.S. Russia economic relationship was quite quite small, but the but Europe's relationship with with Russia is is much much larger. Um, even so, really, what we what we've been seeing over the last over the last decade or so is a is a significantly growing relationship with with states in what moscow still calls uh, asia pacific region so grow, significant growth in relations economic relations with with china with india uh, and so on so so really you see this this shift this the shift and growth in trade not so much a growth in trade with with europe although energy did did rise and grow over the, energy trade did grow over the last decade um but much more growth towards towards the, the east the energy question is is really an important one for this because as I as I say the book the book talks about geoeconomic competition and this this really began with a concern that the United States was starting to compete for Russia's traditional energy markets so this binds economic issues and energy issues on the one hand with national security as is made clear in in the in, in the strategic documentation so. This, the effort when, when the US started to export its own hydrocarbons and increase the export to Europe, this was determined in, in Moscow as, a, as an attempt to break into Russian traditional markets, to take over Russian traditional markets. Now, because the budget is, uh, is largely sustained by hydrocarbon um, exports, this is seen as a challenge to the budget. And a challenge to the budget is a national security question. So all of what you see now is, is, is playing into what the Russian leadership sees as geoeconomic competition. So the cancellation of Nord Stream, which coming up, which which has been, I know, sorry, Nord Stream Two, um, which has been built through over over a number of years, as we as we know, uh, the final cancellation of that again goes to demonstrate this this purpose that the, the Russian leadership sees itself, I think, as being proven right about this geoeconomic challenge. And again, the 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 the, the increasing sent. Uh, sense of of moving to diversify a market out to to asia pacific is is therefore growing now uh the book makes mention of the so-called national champions of the russian economy uh who are these national champions 
Well, really, we, what we're talking about are, are, are the hydrocarbon. Um, I mean, in, in my view, what we're talking about in hydrocarbons. Now, there are a couple of others that uh, that might sneak under the radar. Sort of um, Al Rosa, for instance, in in mining, and you know we've got some agriculture, grain and agricultural parts. We've got um, the arms export and so on. But really, what we're looking at here is, uh, in my view, is Rosneft, Gazprom, and particularly Novatech. So Novatech is the one is the the, the company that was that was charged with developing uh, Yamal LNG in the high north. And that, that for me is really the, the, the national champion that, that, that is perhaps most underrated. We see the hydrocarbon ones, the big hydrocarbon beasts, but uh, I'd add to that Novatech. Now, earlier you mentioned Russia as an Arctic power, and the Arctic region features very prominent in Russian interest, particularly because of the Northern Sea Route. Can you explain uh, this for our listeners? Sure, because this is, to my mind, this is this is the this is the Russian priority for the twenty first century, and I mean, yes, it's an Arctic power. I, I would just emphasize that re-emphasize point I made earlier, thinking about Russia as a as a polar power. I mean, Russia obviously the geography is 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 explicit and it's clear about Russia in, in the Arctic, and I'll come back to that in a second. But but interesting effort is being made to to enlarge Russian presence and develop Russian presence in Antarctica too. So you know, do. The, the book tries to argue that you know reshaping that our thinking about Russia as, as Russia as an east-west question, as a Euro-Atlantic question, perhaps actually it's much more of a polar question because the poles are uh, are the fundament of the important aspects of how Russia sees 21st century hydrocarbons and navigation. These are, I think, in you know, navigation, of course, and information. These are these are the the, the, the driving factors of this. And when one comes to this idea about the Arctic, so it's another really good example of Russia not being ad hoc in the least, the Russian leadership having lots and lots of plans. So there's there's a whole web of strategic plans set out for the development of the Arctic, not just I mean, originally through, through planned in the, we could say, the mid 2000s. Um, you'll remember the effort, or the, the, the dropping of the flag, perhaps in the Arctic under the polar in 2007. But but the, the the web of plans, strategic plans that were developed that decade, shaping out to 2020, new plans recently adopted, shaping Russia's agenda out to 2035. These are state plans. These are state company plans. And there's a whole web there. Some of which you know you have to you have to say are sound committee based, and some of which are a little bit optimistic, and some of which are too detailed. And you know, there's plenty of flaws in them. But the whole point is that it demonstrates where the Russians think they're going to go with this. And because it's their number one priority of internal development. Um, we're talking about obviously Russia retaining its hydrocarbon position. That's going to be the fundament of its economy for the foreseeable future. Um, but as a result, it's also about, about investment and development. So you know, what we see really is, is the attempt to convert the, the northern sea route uh, over a period of, where are we, 2022, over a period of 15 years or more into Russia's internal waterway that can then be used as Russia's transit route um, and develop, you know, I think Putin said by 2024, 80 million tons of, of, of trade going through it. This is this is seen to be as, as part of the shape, uh, changing international structure, alternatives to Suez Canal, alternatives to, to the, long, the long maritime routes around uh, around through the Indian Ocean, a means of connecting Europe to uh, to the Asia Pacific region. So high priority, high priority. And there's an excellent chapter by by Nazrin Medieva in in the book talking about how m much of this is both security oriented and and commercial. That attempt to try to create to treat Russia as an internal waterway uh, has commercial attributes, but also security attributes. And delving into all the different Russian actors who become involved in, in trying to shape this, this priority and this strategy. So for me, it's a good case of strategy in action. Now, getting to the security aspect of this question, is Russia kind of seeking or expecting a confrontation with the West in this region, in the, in the, in the Arctic uh, regions at all? Yeah. yeah, this has been one of, the, one of the transformations through the 2010s. Originally, Originally, probably until the middle of the decade, perhaps I suppose we could we could we could hammer out a specific date. But um, really, through until the middle of the decade, I think there was an effort to say, no, this is more about cooperation. You know, we work together and so on. And of course, Russia has recent um, recent role as the as the as the chair of the Atlantic, uh, the Arctic Council. Um, 
really what we're seeing though is much more focus now towards competition, using it as a tool for competition and, and less having it as a commercial trade route for all kinds, more prioritizing it for Russian companies only. You know, there's there's um, you know, legislation now about foreign warships, limited uh, limited activity through it and so on and so forth. So so there's there's a shift towards it being seen as competitive now rather than um, rather than cooperative. Yeah. And uh, you were kind of talking about like how the Russian government always has these different plans. And the book talks about this concept of strategic planning. What is strategic planning in the Russian view? <laughs> yes, so this is this is something, you know, we could we could have those the, one of those long discussions again about going back to the Soviet era and you know the role that Soviet, the, the role that strategic planning played in here. But let's take it from the early 90s. Even in the early 90s, to degree, there was a question of of an attempt to focus on strategic planning. This, in in my view, and in, I think in the view of the the the, the author uh, uh, of the chapter, really we take this from the mid 2000s. So yes, there was some capability in the 1990s. Yes, there was an intent to do it, but really things have started to take shape under Putin. And there's, there are now hundreds, indeed, depending on how you want to value some of them, thousands of, of, of forecast concepts, strategies, programs, and so on, that really try to shape government and, and, and Kremlin work. And this is based on that, that part I came back to at the beginning, defining strategy, which is about, the long-term assumptions or the assumptions heading out into the future onto which you then try to build plans which you you can then use to to uh, to drive resources and, and and focus resources uh onto to 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 implementing the plan what you see is since the mid-2000s the the, the the creation of um a planning architecture so there's there's an attempt to try to legislate on the one hand to create foundations of strategic planning as Julian Cooper goes into in the chapter, but you also have the, the added emphasis of the growing role of the Security Council. The Security Council is the body that's, that, that uh, oversees drafts and then over, oversees drafts of, and then oversees the implementation of these plans. And this is really one of the, 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 main, the main bodies for, for, for Russian strategic planning, I think. Um, so you have this, this dual approach of both legislation and architecture taking shape in Russia for strategic plan. Yeah, that almost makes me uh, remember, I think it was Stavka during World War II, where they kind of had yeah. something very similar to yeah. that. Uh, were they kind of trying to model it on that, or is this kind of a, a completely new uh, uh, idea that they had? Um, let's, call, let's call it, uh, I mean, well, we can actually be explicit about this, because the... the... <laughs> One of the one of the bodies that has been has been built and, and opened is the National Defense Management Center, which is one of a, a network of situation centers across Russia that are built through the Security Council, built through the presidential administration as well, therefore as well, but also um, uh, through uh, the government and also presidential plenipotentiaries. So these situation centers reach out to a distributed network of um, of, of bodies that, that try to create an automated information system uh, that, that offer strategic analysis and monitoring and, and so on, shaping of priorities and coordination of, of, of bodies. The most obvious one is the National Defense Management Center. And that is explicitly stated that the head of the National Defense Management Center said, we modeled this on the Stavka. So, you know, wherever you go, and it's probably a little bit different in the UK and, and the US these days, but wherever you go in Russia, you can't escape history even when you're looking to the future. So, I mean, the, the example I love to give here, which, which hopefully illuminates this trajectory for, your, for, your, for our audience, is this National Defense Management Center is supposed to be the highest, you know, the, the highest quality, new grade technological development, everything you could possibly want for a 21st century organization in, in, in Russian defense. The rooms, are all, the rooms are all named after great heroes, so Suvorov, Zhukov, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's that that trajectory, which is, the book is trying to get at, of of past influencing the present, and the importance of history, and even the inheritance of history. But still, we're looking to the future. That's that that's that point about strategic planning. And of course, there's lots of disagreement within the system. You know, there's disagreements, as as Julian Cooper makes clear. I mean, as as all of the chapters make clear, there's disagreement and dissonance within the system, but between the economic block, particularly in the security block. So there is an imbalance within planning, and and there is ongoing dissonance there too. So this is that part of that problem about about strategy and, and consensus, and as I said, conducting the orchestra. 
Now, what in your view is the geopolitical future for Russia, especially considering the ongoing war in uh, Ukraine right now? Well, it's it's uh, if we take this as, as the book tries to from um, Moscow's mental map in Russian strategic planning, uh, we're seeing the plan play out, I'm afraid. Uh, with all the flaws and problems that one might expect of having bumped into, you know, unpredictable elements and so on. But I mean, let's let's take the the, the pandemic which we've just had. The, the Russian leadership and many Russian experts were explicit about how this demonstrated that their foresight over the last decade is now coming true. A crumbling world, a you know, a world in disorder, and a world in so much of this. If we go back to the energy question, if we go back to the, the sanctions. Um, we go back to this sense of geoeconomic competition from the in the 2020s, which they've been talking about already for uh, for some years. Uh, and again, you you if you if you listen to both Russian experts but also the Russian leadership, you understand that that Ukraine is considered by them by many there to be the first salvo in a decade of competition. So so the current war in Ukraine, regardless of what whether the Russian military leadership or the Russian leadership calls it a special military operation or what they specifically call it, the Russian the current war in Ukraine is the is the great power competition that we've talked about for five years made real. Moscow is explicit about this. Um, what do I think about what's happening? Uh, the cost for Russia is extremely high. Um, I think it's extremely high in terms of, of most importantly, human life. Um, I think it's going to have huge economic ramifications for the development of, of Russian and Russian socioeconomic conditions. And of course, it have substantive reputational um, in its having substantive reputational um, consequences. So the cost across every area is 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 very high. Um, let's let's bear in mind though that some of what we were talking about earlier, the the, the initial foundations. For the Russian leadership are holding quite strong. Um, China, China and India have not come out against against Russia. They've not cut them off. Um, energy prices, mm, Russian, Russian, you know, the, the the Russian income in in April was was higher than it was last year. Uh, so in the immediate term, the initial foundations are holding strong for, for Russia. Um, diplomacy, the Russian leadership is being very active diplomatically out to the Gulf, into Middle East and North Africa, um, and so on and so forth. And Putin met the uh, president of the African uh, Union recently. So a great deal of activity going on there. Um, but I think really the trajectory over the next three to five years is very rocky for Russia. And it must be said, therefore, rocky for us. Because the you know whether we're in whether we're in, in in European Union Europe whether we're in the UK whether we're in the US uh, the costs are very high um, and, and this is not a question of of Russia simply flubbing this you know making a mess of it and and therefore it's not something we need to consider this is this is as I say unfortunately this is the great power competition made real and and it's going to be a very unpleasant uh, unpleasant experience for I think for everyone involved. Now, what, in your view, is the best way for, uh, say, NATO countries to deal with Russia in light of what you just said about how it may be rocky for both us and Russia? Well, I mean, look, we're going to have to have, I suppose, three, um, two sets of discussions here. Uh, the first is about NATO's actual intervention. Uh, and the second is how we go ahead looking at, at looking at this, the nature of this challenge. And, and as you as you know, and as everyone who's been reading the, the news, um, there's a strong line of argument saying NATO should have become involved to establish a no-fly zone, NATO should now be becoming involved to um, to break the blockade that Russia is imposing on, on Ukraine and so on and so forth. Uh, this, this, of course, I mean, everyone who understands, who calls for this, I hope understands that what this means is that intervention uh, would, would raise the level of fighting to what the Russian military leadership and, and therefore state leadership would define as a regional war. Now, I know this sounds like a like a semantic question, but this actually brings in uh, different categories of weapons. So this is this is already level thinking of of, of two different uh, on two different levels. And people ask about people often ask about the nuclear question. At the moment, I, I don't think this is this is part of the the Russian leadership's calculations. Um, if it becomes a regional war. Then weapons of mass destruction are part of Russian military strategic thinking. So, you know, we have to bear in mind that if we do those things, what that means is that it will involve opening fire on Russia. 
Uh, it will involve Russia opening fire on us. And what we have seen is essentially Russian ground forces um, struggle to, to, to impose their will, and in, many, in some cases, certainly being ta facing tactical defeats uh, and struggling. But what we haven't seen is the weaponry that Russia would actually plan to use against us. None of that remains uh, in any way. None of that has been degraded substantively. We still have the questions of their submarine, their, their submarines and their nuclear deterrence and so on. So any question of, a, of, a, of an intervention that, that actually involves active participation in the conflict has to bear that in mind. Second, and and that, that's going to be very difficult to create NATO consensus on, I think, as a result. The second is, I think that we must bear in mind Russia is a... Uh, as, a, as an adversary through to 2030, so we'll see much more focus on NATO strategic concept. I would like to see that, that NATO actually not underestimating the nature of the challenge. We've gone, there's a big debate you, you might have seen it and, and, your, and our audience might have seen in the, in the news, maybe, maybe it's a bit specialist, I don't, I don't know at the moment, but this debate about how we overestimated Russian military capability before the war and now it's now the war is underway and the Russians have, have taken heavy casualties and lots lost lots of kit. We're now overcorrecting and now we're now treating Russia as a as 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 a little as as not a challenge at all. Um, I think this is to underestimate the nature of of, of the challenge that Russia is posing to us. Uh, I think it, as I say, it hasn't used its strategic capabilities. So I, I think we do now have to think of these in global terms a little bit, like I, I set out in the book. I think we have to bear in mind what horizontal deterrence looks like, what vertical deterrence looks like. Uh, we have to learn from this war, not just that our doctrine is right and the Russians' doctrine is wrong. Um, so, so suddenly we've gone from Russia as a, as a hybrid challenge to Russia as a warfighting challenge. So that, that requires a big intellectual shift, I think. Um, you'll note I haven't advocated for uh, NATO intervention. Um, I've merely said that if there is that, then it has to be done with the deliberacy of forethought. Um, I don't think that we're there yet with the deliberacy of forethought to know what that might look like. Yeah, that kind of gets back to our first question about just how often we get Russia wrong. And I've noticed a lot of like analogies to the uh, to the Winter War of 1939, where the Finns kind of made some tactical successes against uh, the Red Army. But I mean, what people seem to misunderstand is the Rus the Red Army still won. They just won it with more casualties than they expected. Yeah. And of course, Hitler also underestimated the Red Army. He said, you only have to kick in the door and the whole rotten structure will come in. And then that led to Barbarossa. And uh, as we kind of know, that didn't turn out well. So it's it just kind of goes back to that one saying, like Russia is never as strong or as uh, weak as uh, she appears. And, you know, it's almost like, yeah, they might falter in this one area but even kind of as you said with the economy they're faltering in some areas but in other areas they're kind of showing some strength i think this is you know the, your point about the winter war is, is a is a really interesting one because when we think about russian war fighting <laughs> the russian uh the russian political leadership very rarely gives the military a good starting point and if we think about the, the winter war you're, you're i think you're you know you're your point is, is a valid one, that the, the political leadership planned it first. It was, a, it was pretty disastrous in many ways uh, and a huge, appalling cost of uh, human life. Um, but then they, they reorganized, they, let, they, they handed over command to the military and the military gnawed through and, and, and achieved what they, what they intended. Um, but there, are, there is a little bit more to this, that the... Russian, Russian thinking about war is, is, is war is a political question. It's, it's an attempt to resolve the policy clash. And you have, therefore, a spectrum within that. You have the full resolution, full and final victory on the one hand, which is the permanent resolution of the policy clash. But you can have everything underneath that. So a military victory or military defeat that doesn't resolve the policy clash means that the war will roll on. And of course, we only actually have a resolution to the Finnish war years later, after, after the end of the, the, the defeat of Nazi Germany and the, the, the defeat at the same time of, of, of Finland. So and then, then the final the policy question is, is resolved. So what we're seeing is, is an extended set of, 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 of fighting between Moscow and Kiev on the one hand, um, that I suppose you could argue began in, in, in 2014. Uh, some, might, some might say that that's uh, a bit late, some might say it's a bit earlier, given, given the color revolution 2004. But um, 
But what you're seeing is this renewed bout of fighting. And the more that the Russian leadership starts to to equate this with a war with NATO, I think the longer you see this, you see really all of the all of their what they've been talking about and preparing over the last few years come come to pass. And we we need to be a little bit careful about saying about waiting for Putin to die, as you probably see in the headlines that Putin's very ill, uh, waiting for the people to rise up against him. And actually, there seems to be quite a strong quite a strong sense of support for the war. There's a rather ugly aspect to to to, to politics in Russia at the moment. Um, these are the kinds of things that we need to need to, need to uh, factor into our own strategic planning. If in, in, in that we are in competition, our direct and explicit competition with, with Moscow. Um, this isn't just about, about Ukraine, important though that is, uh, and the destruction of Ukraine, which appears to be the, the target. This is actually about global power competition and, and Russia positioning itself in that. And that's what I hope the book while while the war is obviously in everyone's in everyone's mind and the tragedy is in everyone's mind, the, the, the war is, as I say, is a subset of, of, of that competition, I think, for as far as Moscow is concerned, which is what makes it particularly difficult for us. This has been a very fascinating uh, discussion, and I think I've taken up enough of your time. Do you have any other concluding uh, thoughts touching on anything we haven't uh, touched on in the discussion? Um, well, well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for, for, for the opportunity to, to, to speak and to talk about the book. I, I really enjoyed our discussion, our exchanges over this. It's, uh, I hope you found it interesting to, to read the book. I, I always would like to thank the, the, the contributors to this. It's a little bit unusual for a book on Russia in some sense that I want to try and bring to a, a wider public audience in that it's an edited book and we've got some quite, some quite um, senior people in the field writing and contributing in different specific areas. But, but I hope that this book gives a different angle to the usual Russia question and gives some, some sense of why we are today where we are. And this is about that sense of Russian power, all its flaws and its, cap its, its flaws alongside its capabilities. So thank you for, for taking the time to, to read it and ask me to come and speak to you and to your audience for, for listening to our session. <laughs> yes, uh, we usually like to finish off by asking our guests, uh, what are you working on now? Well, thank you. It's <laughs> two things. There's a lot to work on, given the current situation. But we, we're just I'm just completing another volume on, on Russian maritime strategy. Um, that's going in as we speak. Uh, so looking much more at this conversion of Russia, as we were talking about, and not conversion perhaps away from, but, but this building of Russia as a sea, as a sea power, as a maritime power, what Russian strategy sea strategy at sea is. But my current project is 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 a book I'm writing on on the Russian way in war, um, which which I sort of tried to begin in 2018, but then was overtaken by work, and and now I'm coming to a new. So these are the two things that I'm, I'm working on, and I'd, I'd love to discuss them with you in the future. Yes, uh, when you get those uh, projects finished, uh, uh, I would love to have you back on the, the program. With great pleasure. Thank you. Thank uh, Andrew, Andrew Monacam, uh, thank you for joining us on the New Books Network. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich of the Russia and Eurasian Studies channel. Until next time.